0: Good afternoon, Patriots. You are listening to Living with T, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll cover the importance of speaking to those in our communities, postponing and moving the Olympics, a Supreme Court justice gets fact-checked, and we'll finish up with how wokeism pushed a teacher out of the profession. Next, on Living with Liberty. Before we start today, I'd like to give Tom and Phil a big thank you and a shout out for having me on Rucksack Radio yesterday to talk school boards, our communities, and to help me promote my campaign. One thing that we need to do in our communities and within those with whom we agree with, and even with those whom we want to reach, is we need to stick together. We need to have dialogue and, and reasonable conversations and thoughtful conversations. Tom and Phil definitely walk the walk on that one, so I can't thank them enough for having me on their show and let me, like I said, let me crash their party for, for a day here. So something I've noticed out on our the campaign trail is that people are generally nice and willing to talk with you. And that, that doesn't matter which side of the aisle they sit on and, and what their worldview might be. They're, they're actually, once you get into the local community, people for the most part are, are willing to talk with you. And, and and I've noticed a lot of thoughtful consideration of what I'm about and what I'm saying. And, and I hope they feel the same when I'm there listening to their concerns. I think people generally like to have civil discourse, they want to thoughtfully debate things. They want to consider things. They want their communities to be better. And though I'm sure not everyone I've talked to holds my worldviews, uh, especially a few of the folks I've spoken with recently, uh, all has been positive. Everybody has has listened. I haven't been chased off of anybody's porch or told to you know get out of here. However. Uh, kind of getting back to the civil discourse thing for a minute here, and, and this is an interesting piece. I, I was talking with uh, with a person, and and they were pro mask. Uh, they had good reasons. I I I felt to to hold that position. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a personal decision. There's things that. They've experienced in their life that that made them that way, and that's that's totally okay. That they're making the choice, though. And what I liked is, uh, you know, I don't I don't think we probably saw eye to eye politically, but they did acknowledge that there are studies that show both sides of the mass debate. That they had actually taken the time to thoughtfully consider both and and acknowledge that that's there. That's what you'll find, I think, with most of the reasonable people within your community. I also had one person when I was out on Monday uh, that we had uh, common ground. Now, I could tell they probably, again, sat uh, left of me for sure. But they we had common ground on making sure that our history is taught, good, bad, and ugly, and that there actually is a definite benefit to exposing our students to differing and diverse view. Points and world experiences, and the experiences of of uh, you, you know people that have gone through different trials and tribulations that they'll they'll have a different perspective of our own. I agree with that. I think we have common ground with that, and those are the things where we have to start within our communities. We have to talk to each other and start with what is our common ground. We can't just jump in right away to. Uh, the, the call it the fringes of of where we sit, right? I mean, there's some things that are non-negotiables with me, and there's some things that I'm sure are non-negotiables with those that are on this other side of me that that sit to the left. Second Amendment, you know, comes to mind as one of those things. That's a non-negotiable that is enshrined in our Constitution. It, it's the government's job to protect that though they haven't really been doing a very good job of it. There's others that think that that the Second Amendment should be done away. That's not where we start. We start with the common ground. We start with our communities because we all have to live together. And that's what I felt, you know, as I was talking with folks on Monday, as I was out uh, uh, doing my canvassing. We start with our common ground. We find that common ground and we start there. We have gotten away from speaking person to person. And maybe this is going to sound a little tinfoil ish here, but I, at times I, I think that this is by design of our overlords. It's, it's by their design, by their manipulation of us. They want us distracted with arguments on social media over crap that doesn't matter. They want us distracted by the latest sports ball game. They want us talking about those things rather than what is actually going on in our communities rather than what is actually going on person to person. Why is that? Well, if the people aren't discussing what's going on in our communities. The power of the elected official is not challenged in a way that puts them in a position to be held accountable. That goes from local level on up to the federal level. They can then keep on doing whatever it is they and their major donors want to accomplish in terms of cementing power, in terms of stripping the power from the citizenry, which is what the Founding Fathers designed our government to be, They want to strip the power from the people and hold it within the the few elites that we elect to government and by proxy that we appoint to our bureaucratic institutions. If we are distracted by other things, then we are not talking with fellow community members about what's going on within our community, within our states, within the national scene. We are not organizing in a fashion that will bring collective action towards holding elected officials to account. And the power of those we put in charge by electing them only continues to grow. Uh, Let me back up. The the power of those we put in charge by electing them, and then by proxy, those they appoint to the bureaucratic institutions that actually oversee life these days, it seems, their power only continues to grow. And they only continue then to restrict our liberty because we are distracted by all this other stuff. We are distracted by uh, silly arguments on social media and potentially silly arguments with, with whom we may agree with most of the time. It could be a silly argument with someone in our own community where we have to live together. But think about this. What actually happens when you Go out and speak with people in your community. And awareness spreads about what's going on in the community. People find out they're not alone, no matter which side they sit on. People become invested in each other. They become invested in their community. And people see that they have more in common than they don't. And they realize that whether they are sitting a little left or a little right, The centrists are the majority and they start to push back against the fringes that are trying to to encroach upon their way of life and cement their power and control over society. This is something that the elected class can't have, a unified people active in their government and against their um, uh, amassing of power. But if we were to get back to our originalist intent, This is exactly what our country's founders wanted. They wanted the people in charge. They wanted the people educated. They wanted a unified people active in their government so tyranny wouldn't take hold. And quite frankly, our founders knew that we would need, in order to keep our republic as one by the people for the people, an active and educated citizenry. I firmly believe that the same people out there agree in principle on anywhere from 60 60 to 80% of the issues facing our country, our state, our communities. I I, I can attest to that. Now that's, it's a, it's an informal poll, so to speak. I've been collecting data as I've been canvassing, but I would say that's fairly accurate. uh, Especially when you're talking about, people of differing viewpoints and sitting on on uh, different sides of the aisle. I I think if you talk if you talk to anybody, you are you're, you're uh, especially those that might have an opposite viewpoint of yours, there's still 60 to 80% of the issues that you're going to have some common ground on. Now where the debate usually comes in, it's not even the issue itself. I like I said there's there's common ground in uh, and uh, acknowledgement of uh, of the issues itself on what needs to be fixed within our communities. So that's not where the debate and the arguments come in. It's on the solution to the issue. That's where the arguments come in. That's where it gets heated. And this is where relationships get destroyed. This is why people uh, on different sides, the, the communication bridge gets blown up. There, It's because we buy into this national narrative that one side hates the other and one side wants to do in the other and have complete control. That's not it at all. But we let that narrative creep all the way down to our local elections. And then people take that zero sum game within the communities themselves and don't want to give uh, on either side, don't want to budge from whatever their position is when in reality If we'd come together, discuss the issues, be real with the issues, we'd come up with a better solution for our communities. These are where the grudges get formed. It's this this idea that everything has to be a zero-sum game. Now, the other thing I've heard from people is how it seems that it's been just that that the national political b s. tends to creep in at the local level and cause issues. People just honestly, people just want to to live together. They want to live their best life, and they want their communities peaceful and thriving. That's what they want. But this national narrative and the 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 political b s from Washington tends to creep in, and that's what causes issues. There is a solution to this, however. Turn off the TV. Log off social media. Put down the newspapers, particularly the national newspapers, and go out and actually interact with those in your community. You will find that for the most part, we don't want to be absolutists here, but for the most part, most of your fellow community members are all looking for the same thing, a nice place to live where they can live their best life, where they can raise their families, without worry of threats or violence where their kids can be educated so they can compete on uh, w- within our global economy. That's what people want. It, it, it doesn't matter if they're right or left. That's We all want our liberty, our freedom, and we wanna live our best life. And think about this, if we're being our our, our honest selves, the honest truth here is that in the end, most of what we squabble over amongst ourselves doesn't matter. It's only a distraction. And like I said, my, putting my tinfoil hat on for a minute, it, it's a distraction caused by those who want to federalize our country and have it run by the administrative state. All right, on to my next story. In a little under a month, the Winter Olympics will be underway in Beijing, China. The Olympic Committee should have never let it get this far in terms of letting the show go on in Beijing while there are still human rights abuses and and the crushing of liberty being committed in China. Now, I have an American Greatness article here from Thomas Hafer titled, The Beijing Olympics Should Be Postponed and Relocated. Hafer brings up the point how given China has been by far, far and away the strictest country in terms of lockdowns and disrespect for civil liberty in their quest for zero COVID, the game should be postponed in the face of Omicron as there would be too many questions surrounding how the Chinese would handle an outbreak amongst the athletes and any visitors. Would the Chinese communist government shut down entire cities as they have done in the past and uh, and I would assume in the future to try and control outbreaks of COVID? Would they enforce quarantines of foreigners who may happen to test positive? There's too many questions, Hafer says, on how the Chinese would react to an outbreak of COVID uh, during the games to let them go on. Hafer goes on to say that not only should the Olympics be postponed, but they should be moved until China cleans up their human rights abuses. I totally agree. The Olympics are one of those events that should be highlighting the unity of nations and the people of this earth. It's a time to come together and celebrate athletic achievement And for those athletes to show that they are truly the best in the world in their event, to show off their hard work in events that we don't care about, save for every four years when they pop up in the Olympics. Hafer says this about the Olympics. He writes in his piece, they, meaning the Olympics, confer prestige and legitimacy to the host country. And they generate immense publicity, which can be used to generate propaganda by a manipulative nation. Now, this doesn't mean that a country has to be perfect to host the Olympics. If that were the case, there would be no Olympics at all. At least no host countries, if that was the standard, is a perfection by a particular country. However, it does mean that basic things like not oppressing people because of their chosen faith and respect for the liberty of the citizens should be heavily weighted when awarding the Olympic Games to a host nation. Now, Hafer also had this to say. He goes on in his piece. The Chinese government does not deserve these honors. The Biden administration has already instituted a diplomatic boycott, in quotes, of the games because of human rights abuses against Chinese indigenous minorities, including allegations of beatings, torture, and forced organ harvesting. The authoritarian Chinese government also systematically suppresses democracy in general, and specifically in places such as Hong Kong, where prominent activists have been arrested and jailed, and only government-approved political cl- candidates are allowed to run for office. <laughs> diplomatic boycott—that's uh thats really showing them, Joe. Actually, the diplomatic boycott is more so. Joe doesn't have to go to China and have she hand him his ass in a debate. More than anything else, this is not a. It's it just provides a, this diplomatic. Boycott provides cover for Joe to not have to travel. And let's be honest, Joe isn't going to be flying anywhere that is longer than a six to eight hour flight these days. So he's pretty much Europe and that's about it for Joe. He's attempting to take a political win where he can get it with this diplomatic boycott. Let's not forget the hypocritical American corporations who only have principles when they think it won't hurt their bottom line. Coca-Cola and Delta are both sponsors of the Olympics. So beatings, torture, forced organ harvesting, and government-approved political candidates are a okay for Coke and Delta, but the Georgia voting laws, that was a bridge too far for them. These corporations are complete clown shows. They won't stand on principle when it comes to daddy China because Beijing has these companies by the balls. They won't Ever anger she and risk being thrown out of China's vast market. I'd be willing to bet, though, that if there were a company that actually stood on the principles that they they espouse to their people, they espouse that they have, and they espouse internally these principles. Anybody that works for a large corporation can can rattle these principles that they supposedly have off because they pound you with them every day if these companies actually stood these large mega corporation large donors to things like the Olympics actually stood on the principles they espouse and they pulled out of sponsoring the Olympics until they were moved out of China or until China cleaned up its act in relation to how it treats its citizenry that company's products would fly off the shelf well if there were any on the shelf anyway and their stock price would shoot up to new highs. I, I have no doubt. It's, we've, it's been proven over and over again that when a company takes a stand against something, people respond and support that company. Just think back to Goya and when their uh, CEO came out in, uh, during the campaign last year for president and, and supported what Trump was stood for and how you couldn't find Goya products for a while. That's what would happen here if a company actually stood on its principle. Told China to piss off until you, uh, until you clean up your human rights abuses, until you have a legitimate democracy. We're not going to sponsor anything that has to do with you. That that company would be golden in the eyes of of the consumer. Just once, just once, it would be nice if a corporation stood on the principles they beat their employees over the head with day in and day out to lead the way in something as serious as helping force the hand of an oppressive regime to force their hand in treating their citizens better. All right, moving on. It's, it's finally happening. It is happening. We have a Supreme court justice getting fact-checked. Is this a broader trend? No. No, Just turn on MSDNC or CCPNN and watch them still trying to tell you the sky is green and the grass is blue. But some outlets that do have a shred of integrity and dignity left have noticed the trend amongst the people and really the the popularity of the media as a whole and are deciding they better start telling just a little truth. PolitiFact has issued a fact check. Against justice soda uh, Sonia sotomayor's statement during the January seventh hearing on the OSHA mandates and that statement was this uh Sotomayor said this we have over one hundred thousand children which we've never had before in serious condition many on ventilators once again we can go right to the CDC website and see that since August 2020 so so her her Context here makes it even seem like it's current that this is real, that this is we have a hundred thousand children in serious condition today. We go to the CDC website and see that since August of 2020, say it again, August 2020, since then, 83,000 children have been hospitalized due to COVID. And it has since been admitted. By multiple sources, doctors, I believe even the CDC came out. I, I couldn't find it, but I, I, I want to say it was a CDC as well. Check me on that one. Doctors, for sure, because it's in this article I'll post, that many of the children are hospitalized with it, not because of it. They come in for a broken arm, for something else. They get tested, and they're found to be COVID positive. So they're not even being hospitalized because of COVID, the majority. Not saying there aren't kids that are, there are, especially ones with serious health conditions, but the vast majority are hospitalized with it, not because of it. Now, because of this absurd statement, PolitiFact couldn't ignore that 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 this statement. They couldn't ignore it as they issued this statement as part of their fact check. They PolitiFact wrote this. The pediatric hospitalization rate has remained much lower. I'll say that again. PolitiFact said this the pediatric hospitalization rate has remained much lower than that of other age groups. So I don't know what's worse at this point. The fact that we have justice as plain politics, which I know we've had forever, it seems now. Or is it the fact that the justices are so badly misinformed about the details surrounding a case that is before them? Now, this is an OSHA case. I mean, we go back to this for a second. This is an OSHA case. This has to do with adults in the workplace. One has to beg the question, why the hell is she even bringing up children? That Children have nothing to do with an OSHA rule being propagated for workplace environments. But yet we've got judges playing politics here. So I don't know what's worse at this point. The politics or the justices hearing a case and they're so misinformed about data surrounding the case that that's even tangential to the case that that has nothing to do with the case. All Sotomayor had to do was just get on the intranet. I'm assuming the government entities have an intranet. If not, she could have got on the internet and checked out the CDC page on COVID hospitalizations for herself. We all have information literally at our fingertips, on our phone, on a computer that we can access within minutes to check out facts and figures. We don't have to call anyone to get them. We don't have to go down to the library and look through volumes of encyclopedias to get them. We can pull out our phones, pull out our computers, pull out our tablets, and do a quick search and have the information on demand right there, flash it up to whoever we're talking to. Now, apparently Sotomayor couldn't be bothered to take five minutes to inform herself on the official stats, of the case uh, before the court or the, the official stats of children being hospitalized with COVID? Or, or was it that she was taking liberty with rounding off the hospitalizations of the children? Maybe she did look it up and said, "Ah, eh, 83,000, close enough to over 100,000, I'll roll with it. I'm part of the elite, nobody is going to fact check me. Uh, who knows? I don't know. I'm, I wasn't in her head. I was. I don't know if she researched uh, the, the statement. suggests she didn't research at all, but distinctly possible in this day and age of uh, of just saying whatever whatever needs to be said to to elicit a, an emotional response. And nothing elicits an emotional response uh, like harm to children. Uh, maybe she just said, ah, we'll, we'll just we'll just do a little rounding trick here. Eighty three thousand, close enough. Hundred or over a hundred thousand kids. I'm gonna roll with that. Now, kind of secondary to this, a lot of what the liberal wing of the court said during the hearing is ripe for fact checks, which, be honest, they're not going to come. We won't see any more fact checks. I'd be surprised if we saw any more fact checks out of what the liberal wing of the court said during that hearing. Truthfully, though, the, the, the whole charade, the whole hearing is an embarrassment to jurisprudence. We had Supreme Court justices looking at things through a partisan political lens of driving fear for the benefit of those who want to totally strip freedom and liberty from the people and keep power for themselves that was only supposed to be temporary. Two weeks to flatten the curve, anyone? Here we are two years later. That power was only supposed to be temporary. I I would say that we need to start pressing right now that at the local state federal level emergency powers are good for two weeks and then they need to be evaluated and authorized by the people's representatives that we elect to congress our state houses our local municipal uh, uh, boards this was supposed to be temporary and here we have two years later supreme court justices looking through their partisan lens to drive Fear for the benefit of those who want to hold on to that temporary power. They do this instead of looking through the lens of what does the laws passed by Congress actually authorize OSHA to create rules for. What do those laws that Congress put in place authorizing OSHA, what does it say OSHA can actually do? That's the only lens that needs to be looked at here. And those, the liberal wing of the, the court was an embarrassment to to try and and utilize emotion to to try and drive this case to its to 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 the predestined outcome that the Biden administration wants you think about it there's a, we're we're seeing it now there's a reason the founders only authorized four bureaucratic institutions in the constitution Everything else has been added through laws passed by Congress, which means, as I look at it, they're un- unconstitutional. If, if we're to have this nanny uh, state, uh, the, this administrative state. All those bureaucracies created outside of the four authorized by the constitution need to be constitutional amendments. And this is a very reason why we're seeing those reasons why play out in front of us right now, because Congress won't hold them accountable. They keep hauling clowns like Fauci in front of them and they do nothing to him. Ram Paul's about the only one that seems to do anything. I, I take that back. Our Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, I think is he's had some, some good tussles with him too, but, As a whole, you look at the whole of Congress, they authorize these administrative bureaucracies and then they don't hold them accountable. That's why our founding fathers, they knew that any more than the four they authorized would result in in a tyrannical government where you have unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats taking over, making rules, and we'd get back to the, the, uh, the lords and the serfs. That's where we're heading. We need to to have our elected officials on the hot seat, start pushing for this stuff now, start telling them they need to roll back the power that these bureaucratic institutions have been given. None of them are accountable to people. None of them should be making rules. In the Supreme Court, those justices, whether it's the conservatives or the liberals, need to look at things through the lens of the law and not their own political lens. All right. The last story I have here today is how wokeism and cancel culture forced a longtime teacher into permanent retirement. Now the piece is titled "Wokeism Ended This Father's His Father's Teaching Career." Now this educator has a warning for other educators, and that's by Virginia Allen of the Daily Signal. Alan interviews Albert Paulson, a high school civics teacher in New Jersey, about what his father, Martin Paulson, who, by the way, sadly passed in 2020. He had a long career. I'll post the article. He had a long career. He's almost 50 years an educator. But sadly passed in 2020. The younger Paulson's telling Alan about what his dad faced in the last years of his teaching career. Martin Paulson, by all accounts, and that's the elder Paulson, was one of those teachers that everyone liked and respected. He really went out of his way to build relationships with his students. He had a heart for his students, and he, more most importantly, challenged them in their thinking. Now, what I want to highlight here, I encourage you to read the article. It's a a fantastic article. What I want to highlight here is how wokeism's lack of respect for those interrelationships amongst people. Uh, really contributed to to Martin Paulson kind of giving up his teaching career. Uh, it, it's a sad. It's a sad. St- I hate to end the show on a sad story, but it's a sad story. It, it, it's a warning, though, too, for all of us. Martin Paulson taught high school history for almost forty years, and after retiring from teaching high school, he went on to teach history at a local college for another decade in New Jersey. I have now. I'm going to read. It's a longer excerpt than I typically read from uh, from the pieces I reference and, and post, but it's important I read it all so you can get the full breadth of Martin's story. And I'll have two two pieces here. I, I, I won't read them back to back, but there'll be two longer pieces here, just to uh, just so you know. Alan writes this about the first encounter Martin Paulson had with wokeism. It goes like this. In 2017, the elder Paulson had a student in his world history class who was a particularly excellent writer. Her work stood out among the other students, and he read one of her papers aloud to his class to highlight the quality of her writing. The pair developed a wonderful relationship as teacher and pupil, Paulson said the younger Paulson, And they would joke with one another, often in good fun. Remember that, that line there. The student would tease him once in a while and call him a crazy old white guy. And he would tease her back, the son recalled. It was this endearing sort of teasing of just having a good time because it was a relationship of trust and they really thought the world of each other, he said. At the end of the semester, the student again wrote an excellent paper. The professor congratulated her and teased, not bad for a girl. The two laughed because that was their relationship, Paulson said. But sitting a couple seats away, uh, a couple seats over, you probably guessed it already, couple seats over was a student majoring in gender studies who did not find the comment funny. This student reported Paulson's father to school administrators. Now the college didn't take any disciplinary action, but the incident was noted in his father's file, Paulson said. Why was this even necessary? Why did the college have? Why, why did the college not have enough sense? Or why didn't? Why couldn't the college just have enough sense to talk with the student? The, the writer, the one with the relationship with Martin Paulson to see what was going on and realize that there was nothing here but good-natured banter between friends that had a mutual respect for each other. That gender studies student, I can only assume the way the story's laid out here, had no knowledge of the relationship between Paulson and this student. But yet that gender studies student got their nose in a snit about good-natured joking between two friends and decided they needed to take the high road, they needed to take action and defend this student from the mean old teacher. The two were laughing. I mean, obviously there, there's no issue with what's going on. But you have here someone who has never taught about ABC Conversations. This is an A&B conversation, so see your way out decided that this lighthearted banter between two people just couldn't be tolerated because something was said that I don't agree with, so I just have to do something about it. Ridiculous. You could see that nobody was uncomfortable in the, the, the situation. There was laughing. The student had a relationship. Her papers had been read before. But you've got someone here that couldn't mind their own business and had just felt they had to speak up and say something. The unfortunate part here is it doesn't end with just that one incident for for Mr. Martin Paulson. Allen's piece goes on with this story from the younger Paulson. It says this, the following semester, the elder Paulson, again, was teaching a history course and a black student in his history Uh, in his class, who was aspiring to become a history teacher himself. The student visited the professor on occasion during office hours to talk about teaching, and the two developed a good relationship. One day, Paulson's father was teaching the class about groups that form or emerge in society to push back on certain norms he gave the example of the organization Black Lives Matter and asked the black student if he would share a little bit about his own experience as a young black man in America. The student shared some thoughts and seemed pleased to have the opportunity to do so, the younger Paulson said. Here it comes again, but another student in class didn't find it appropriate for a white teacher to ask a black student to share his experiences. The professor again was reported the college gave Paulson's father a choice between resigning or taking a semester off and completing cultural sensitivity training at the end of which he would appear before a panel to be questioned. The younger Paulson finished up with this. He said, my father at that point was just exhausted as well as demoralized by it. Martin Paulson had good relationships with his students. If, if if it was anything but the case, I don't think he interacts with that student where he was joking and said, not bad for a girl. He wouldn't have asked this black student about his opinions on Black Lives Matter and his, his, um, his experience as a young black man in America, as it was put. The question needs to be asked here, who the hell made these students who have no knowledge of the relationships that have been built between two people, arbiters of what is acceptable and not acceptable to ask or uh, another person or how to speak to another person? Who made these two students arbiters of that? Isn't it important that we all understand everyone's lived experience? That's what we keep getting told anyway. You don't understand my lived experience. Well, tell me about it then. So I do understand. We keep getting told this, yet we have a teacher here who asked a student to share his experience, a teacher that had a relationship built with the student, and the teacher knew there would be a comfort level in both. The teacher asking the student to share and the student giving their perspective, that teacher's reprimanded for doing so. We keep being told we need to have more open and honest dialogue, that we need to be cognizant of uh, of perspectives. All of that. Uh, But, you know, it's also now it seems, oh, by the way, if you're the wrong color, you can't ask about them. In this case, thinking about that, thinking about that second story, isn't that Denying the student the opportunity to tell his story and share his perspectives and to share his lived experience so everybody can benefit and understand where he's coming from isn't that the point of this that's what we're told over and over. Here a teacher gave a student the opportunity to do that someone got their undies in a bunch reported them, and now we had a good teacher that said i've had enough i'm done. This next thing's a a generalization, but based on the endless cycle of moronic activity we've seen, there's probably a modicum of truth to it. The two snitching students are probably the same ones. You'll find out in front of the protest saying how more women's black, brown, native insert protective group protected group hears voices need to be amplified and heard. Yet they work to get those opportunities for these voices to be amplified. And those with a genuine interest in helping promote, those voices shut down. They work to shut down the opportunities for people to speak. Do you see what an endless cycle of stupidity this is? Rhetorical question, I know you all do. A man whose passion was teaching basically gave it up because the endless cycle of stupid, known as wokeism, took his joy. I'll end the show with one last excerpt from Allen's piece. This one is in relation to how Albert Paulson teaches. Now, the younger Paulson says this, or, 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 or excuse me, Virginia Allen writes this about the younger Paulson. She said this, Paulson says he is careful not to share his political views with students because he feels it would be unfair to them. But students have told him that he is the exception because most teachers are overt about their political views. Now, this is how it should be when it comes to, uh, when it comes to teaching students. What Paulson, the younger Paulson's approach is how it should be I could never tell my teacher's political leaning. It's unfair to our students to bring that in. It inhibits the process of learning how to think. Teachers are trusted figures. If they're telling you something, I think you're as a student, a young, impressionable mind, you're more apt to go along with that. And then you lose that ability to critically think for yourself because you expect someone's just going to keep telling you what to do or what to think or what to say. We need to get back to letting people enjoy their relationships as they see fit. If you have a relationship where you can joke like that, do it. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's mutual and respectful and both sides understand, who cares? We need to take the politics out of the classroom and teach kids how to think, not what to think. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with the knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on parlor. My handle is at Living with Liberty. You can also email me. The address is Ryan at Liberty Podcast dot com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.